We'll get started with a roll call. <laughs> Director Page. I'm here. Director West. Uh, January 16th, present. Uh, Chair Limbaugh. Here. And in attendance online, I have Director Raleigh, Director Cox, Director Hoffman, and Director Ramirez. Okay, welcome directors. Okay. Okay, uh, gotta get approval of the agenda, everybody uh, okay? One moment, please, I just have to oh. do presenting staff. Okay. Okay, presenting staff, I have General Manager Adnan Anatari, um, Tesfay Disami, Mike Simpson, Tony Winkle, Wesley Mansell, and Christy Yuna, and Doug Kunz. Okay, ready to roll? Approval of the agenda, okay, agenda? Yes. Mike, good? Yes. Approval of the meeting summary from November 21st, 2023. Good to go? Yep. Good to go. First item on the agenda, item number four that we're gonna talk about is the Mojave River Pipeline Traveling Screen Workshop. Good morning, I'll, I'll kick this off real briefly. Um, this is a, a project we've been working with for a few years now. Um, we have finished Mojave River Pipeline traveling screen. Um, and uh, one, of the, one of the challenges is there's a lot of moving parts to this thing, um, specifically the, the bid that we will be going out to uh, pretty soon here, as well as the, author, the um, uh, construction management and engineering uh, services during construction pieces. Uh, discussing this with uh, uh, engineering and operations staff, um, it was determined it would be good to pull a workshop together to describe kind of the different moving pieces here so that everyone is on the same page um, as the items come up as a request to the committee as well as the board in, in the coming weeks. It becomes more clearer for the, for the directors. Okay, one minute here while we fix an audio issue. Testing one, two, three. Can't hear anything. Doesn't matter what you do on here. I apologize, give us one moment, please. Please enter your access code followed by the pound or hash sign. To enable audio controls, please enter your audio PIN followed by the pound or hash sign. Okay, testing, can you confirm whether or not you can hear us online, please? Yes, we can hear you. Thank you so much. Sorry for the delay. Okay. Um, 
For those online, you've missed my uh, brief introduction, but uh, no need to belabor it. So I'll pass it over to um, uh, Tesfe to, to walk over the workshop on the Mojave River tra Pipeline traveling screen. Thank you, uh, General Manager Anaptawi. Uh, for the record, uh, my name is Tesfe Demsey, Engineering Manager with the Mojave uh, Water Agency. My workshop is titled uh, Mojave River Pipeline Traveling Screen Project. I would like to give an you know, uh, update on the status as introduced by uh, Mr. Anaptawi. The agenda I have for today's presentation uh, includes the project. I would be discussing the location, uh, give brief background on uh, the project then describe the purpose and the component parts as well. Uh, go over the required professional uh, services as related to the different phases of the project. And finally, I will discuss uh, the next steps and conclude my presentation. So this is the project location. Uh, as you can see here is the Mojave Water Agency boundary within the state of California. And the project is located at the adjacent to the California aqueduct here. I would like you also to uh, you know, pay, uh, just pay attention at this location. We have uh, one recharge sites and the remaining recharge sites are shown along the Mojave uh, River pipeline alignment. Um, it is also bounded uh, to the north by Highway 18, and to the east you will find uh, 395. This is a zoomed-in view of the project site. As you can see, it is bounded to the north by the Duncan Road and to the east by White Road, and it shows the pipe traversing the uh, project site and at the white road turnout. Uh, this is also to give you the uh, parcels owned by uh, the agency. The project is in this portion, so there is an existing parcels that are slated for future expansion. Before uh, Discussing the purpose of the project, I would like to give a brief background why uh, we do this project, meaning the need, why we need to do the project. Um, the issue observed, you know, the water coming from the California aqueduct enters the pipe system without being screened. And so the first screening station is located about 5.5 uh, miles downstream at the Cassia. Uh, PRV or pressure uh, relief uh, reducing valve uh, location. And even then, only half of the pipe capacity could be uh, screened because one of the pressure reducing valve or, or the drum is not strained for one of the pressure reducing valves. In addition, it operates at high pressure uh, that causes you know, several point overflow and uh, operational uh, issues. Uh, as we can see here, uh, you know, 
there are debris associated here. And the agency also has other traveling screen uh, facilities that do uh, a screen for the full pipe capacity. However, uh, it has to deal with uh, mosses uh, and other debris material as shown here that needs collection and storing in a dumpster until it is disposed off-site. Now, these are the issues. One with the Cassia location, it is, you know, we, we don't use the full capacity, but for the other where we have the traveling screen, there is a storage, and with storage, there are attraction to insects or vectors, as well as uh, generation of strong odors. So after giving this brief background, so the purpose of uh, this project is it does uh, address two issues. The first one is it eliminates the need to repair or replace the existing uh, uh, straining for the Cassia uh, road, PRV, and also eliminates the need to uh, build a new one so that we can utilize the full pipe capacity. The reason being the new traveling screen uh, you know, screens materials for the full pipe inflow. And as opposed to the other screening facilities we have uh, that are located off aqueduct, this one is, you know, uh, where, uh, the debris would be cleaned back and discharged back to the aqueduct so we don't have to deal with offsite transport. And the system, uh, this, uh, there is a new uh, building as well. And the, in, the, the additional benefit here is, oh, sorry. The additional benefit is by doing pipe modification on the existing pipeline, we can add additional turnout and do uh, water recharge at this location. And in, in fact, allow also for future expansion as you can see it. So the component parts for this project as outlined here is the modification which requires the modification of the current uh, turnout within, in coordination with D DWR, as well as pipe modification here. The new installation uh, involves the installation of the uh, traveling screen and the related appurtenances, uh, a new building containing the screen, cleaning pumps, controls, SCADA, and electrical power supply. And of course, for the recharge, there will be soil excavation, export, and grading required. Uh, these are the access road around the pond, and this is the access ramp for uh, getting to the bottom of the recharge pond for uh, maintenance purpose. So once I give this background, I would like to focus on this one. So the first one is the planning. Uh, as I have already explained, uh, it, the planning phase identifies the need for the project, so I won't uh, repeat it here. Uh, the second one is 
the preliminary design phase. The preliminary design phase uh, involves development and uh, analysis of design alternatives. Uh, those required uh, environmental geotechnical surveying and permitting, and it did concluded with the development of the preliminary design report in December 2020. And so the selected alternative is then goes to the design and the specification where detailed engineering design uh, as well as coordination with uh, DWR for the review and update of agency's turnout, turnout permit will be uh, done. And the development and construction uh, documents are also uh, generated during this process. Then the next phase would be the bid documents when uh, the review of the design and specification is completed, meaning we have 100% plan specification and the required permit. Uh, we will uh, then include the front end of the specification getting ready for bid advertisement. And the bid advertisement phase, uh, we will be procuring or uh, requesting requests for proposals for engineering services such as construction management, construction inspection, and in engineering services during construction, also known as the engineer of record. Uh, the construction phase, I will get into detail after two slides. And then finally, after the construction process is completed, we head to the project closeout and commissioning phases. So right now we are at this uh, pro uh, stage or phase. Uh, we, do, we have received the plans, specifications, and others, so we are reviewing it to make it ready for bid advertisement. So this is the summary of the timelines of authorizations uh, uh, related to the project phases. Now, at the inception back in 2019, uh, the board authorized to advertise RFP. And then uh, in January 2020, the board authorized Carolo to commence uh, preliminary design with a fee. And during that time, the authorized uh, professional services agreement include, at least within the staff report, the preliminary design, design and the bid phase, and construction phase support. And because of the selection of the preferred alternative, it proceeded to the final design and the board authorized Carolo again to perform design and bid phase services in March 2021. And at the same time, it also approved the review of the design by DWR. And this is during design specification and bid document phase of the project. The next one is the authorization or a follow-up or continuation of the review by DWR. And the last approval we have on this one is to go out for uh, bid advertisement for the construction. 
So I would like to go a little bit in detail on uh, this phase. Uh, now, since we are on the verge of going out you know, for bid advertisement, the construction phase, the agency would be responsible for bid advertisement and overall project control, usually done through a construction manager. And the construction manager would be a firm or a, a person that would keep the best interest of the agency during construction. So the construction manager would achieve this one by controlling time, cost, scope, and quality. So there is one new member that joins uh, during the bidding phase, uh, which is uh, after the bid, that's the contractor. The contractor will be responsible for their subcontractors as well as suppliers, while the engineer of record would, uh, the engineer of record or the engineering service during construction would be the firm that uh, designed the plans and prepared the specifications. So, who would be better suited to respond to questions? Uh, that uh, come during uh, construction phase, responding to requests for uh, um, information, as well as review and response to submittals. So by, uh, in most of the time, the engineer of record would become uh, a part of the construction team. The next one would be the uh, construction inspection, which would be an eye for the agency by tracking what's going on uh, at the construction site, such as materials, levers, what has been completed, which portion of the construction is done. And uh, so the construction manager would be in charge of these three entities, the engineer of record, contractor, and construction inspection. So the next steps and tentative timelines for the project include uh, bid advertisement. And at the same time, we plan to do RFP advertisement for uh, construction management and construction inspection services. We uh, plan also to seek board authorization for the selected contractor and CM and uh, CI consultant or consultants and the engineering service during construction would most uh, likely would be Carolo because they did uh, design and also altered the specifications. And then in June, we plan to get a contractor, uh, contract executed as well as professional services uh, signed with the consultants. And depending upon uh, Time, you know, the pre-construction and uh, construction could commence at the same time or within the same week, or we will follow the contract uh, with a certain time uh, as allowed in the specification. So the projected uh, construction in the date would be sometime in July 2025, and with the project closeout and commissioning in uh, August to October of 2025. That concludes my presentation. If you have any questions, thank you. Any questions, Mike? I do. I just.
I had a couple, I guess. Um, so on this, you said the engineering services during construction, EOR, probably would be Corolla since they did the design. Correct. Uh, in my experience has been uh, all engineers who prepared the plans and the stamped, as well as who authored the specifications, they will be the most qualified to address issues during construction in a timely manner. Is there ever a case where it wouldn't be that? It just that maybe that engineer didn't exist anymore or something? Uh, it 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 does exist where it goes you know if we you know find one but it would be um, you know, my experience has not been the case um, but it could be possible for instance if someone designed the preliminary design report and we went during the final design to a different one we might have uh, different engineers but in this case, since uh, both the PDR and the final design is by the same firm, uh, that, that's how it... Okay. And um, did we um, complete CEQA on this project yet, or did CEQA? And I was just curious what it was. Was it exempt, or does the state yeah, do I, it, or...? I can answer that. <laughs> this has been a long project. Uh, back, uh, I want to say, maybe the following the PDR, we did a CEQA on... Um, on the project, so, um, and I'm trying to remember, I think it was done under an NOE, notice of exemption, um, and it was, um, but it was, it's been some time, so we can, we can resurface that for you to give you some background. I, I was just curious, and it seems like things that took place through COVID got delayed, so right. you may have to re-up it or something, as I think they do have a sunset. Um, in a fenced area. becoming common to, uh, put the moss back in or other, is this becoming more the norm? And then the next follow-up question would be, so what happens to the moss going downstream? Just, is someone, who does take care of it? Does it just settle out somewhere in some big reservoir? Or? So I know I've seen uh, DWR do some, some maintenance upstream, and I've seen some devices that pull out some of the moss. I haven't seen that performed out on the east branch here near our neck of the woods. Um, I assume uh, this is nothing new. We've seen this already. That's kind of how we got the design. We like that design and is already existing. And it's like, well, why should we try to manage that uh, debris as well? If it's if it can be returned back, let's return it back. And uh, where it goes from there, I don't know. I don't know if it ends up in Silverwood. I don't know if it ends up at another catch basin. Uh, I'm sure we probably catch some of that at the Antelope Siphon, uh, just because it's downstream. But hopefully we don't get a whole lot of that. But uh, there, it's already existing. There are some existing. And so that's why we, we felt uh, let's take advantage of this design. Um, well, I like the design. And I like the fact that we don't have to deal with the transport and disposal. It just makes you wonder, well, I mean, and of course, DWR is fine with it too. So there we go. Just curious. Thanks. Um we have full approval from DWR. As I last recall, I think we got the final stamp of approvals from them. It yes, from DWR? A two-year process, but we got and, there. And um, when we enter the canal to put the new screen in, <coughs> or I guess it would be a bar grade or whatever, we, we, do they require lowering of the canal? So there, there has been those discussions, whether they're going to lower the canal, whether we have to get some divers to go in there and perform some inspections, measurements uh, during the installation. That's, that's to be determined at this time. 
Um, but th that is an option as well, lowering the canal. Okay. Um, has GWR specified there's a timing limitation to when we can do that over the next two years? Have they given us a window or that's to be, to be determined? To be determined, but typically done at the very start of the year. So um, if we were to begin construction um, late this this year, um, probably as soon as January, February would be a good timing, depending, of course, on the water year. But, um, yeah, to be determined. We, just to give you a sense of the design, we're using the existing bar screen um, uh, uh, slots there in the aqueduct turnout to, to rest the new screens in there. Um, so there's a... It's not as complex as it would be if we were starting from scratch there. Good. Do we have an estimate for the project? Cost? Cost. Uh, the last engineer's estimate, I think, was $6.4 Okay. Um, and are we receiving any grant funds for this project? We are. How much? Yes, I... Oh, I couldn't... I normally, I would look to Lynn for this, but... Uh, Half, <laughs> some... I think we're right up. We have a combination of monies, some from the state, some from the federal. So uh, I think in combination, maybe t between uh, three and four million. I'd have to double check, but I, um, we can we can uh, provide an update. Okay. Moving on. Thank you for your report. Mojave River. Thank no. You. 2024 State Water Project Storage and Delivery Update Workshop. Christy. morning thank you so this is our mine as well um, can you speak just closer into the microphone okay thank you um, we currently have a 10% table a allocation this is giving us a total of 8980 acre feet we're looking forward to uh, the January announcement which should be coming out very soon uh, DWR allocations are typically very conservative. Uh, usually allocations are issued December to April. Uh, conditions are still too early um, to say if we have a wet or dry El Nino. However, a significant snowfall rolled through uh, the Sierras last week, and California is expecting uh, rain, a statewide rainfall uh, by, by this weekend. Uh, we also have Article 12E water, which is Table A water that we couldn't deliver due to our local outages during the months um, October through uh, December 2023. The total is about 1,000 acre feet. Article 12E has to be delivered the first three months of 2024. We also have Article 14B water, which is Table A water that we couldn't deliver due to state outages. It began in March of 2023. It hasn't not been approved yet by DWR. Um, totals just about 3,330 acre feet. This water, Article 14B, we can deliver throughout the year. So, if you before you move on, Christy, um, I want to commend Christy and Mike on um, their inventiveness here. We have not used. I don't think we've used these provisions under the contract to deliver water. Uh, if you recall, light, late last year. We were concerned about potential uh, Article 21 being offered, which would then result in spill at the start of the year based on DWR's accounting, which would mean any carried over uh, con uh, 
consistent with Article 56, which is the, the carryover provision we typically use, um, would be subject to spill. The thought here was that if we used other articles related to outages, we could protect that water in the event it was wet, um, uh, and we did have spill at the end of the last year, we would sort of protect a portion of that water from being reallocated to all contractors or, uh, or spilled. So I just want to say this is, I think, new, um, but related to outages and, again, us exercising our, uh, our rights under the contract. So yes. just kudos to those. Yeah, um, we haven't ever used Article 14B water. Right. Anyway, thank you. That's all I wanted to say. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Christo, can you go back to that last slide? So can you clarify or, or um, add some more information too? In the event that uh, the 14B water is not approved, we do not lose the 3,300-acre feet, correct? That just, no, that'll go we back would, to No, it goes carryover. into storage in, um, in uh, San Luis Reservoir, and it becomes Article 56C water. Thank you. So these are our customer requests. Um, the R-cubed uh, water comes in just about on 8,300 acre-feet. And um, state water project wet water deliveries are going expected to be about 4,500 acre-feet. Uh, we do deliver out of uh, groundwater uh, storage, um, which would is high as a power plant and water master replacement obligation in the amount of about 10,000 acre-feet. These are available storage and supplies in Table A amounts. Uh, we expect to um, have in San Luis Reser Reservoir about 3,300 acre-feet. If Table A isn't approved, you can add another, that 3,330 acre-feet to that, or if 14B isn't approved. Not, not to interrupt, but um, by these storage things right now, we're looking at uh, if we take 8,000 a year out of storage, Alto has uh, over 20 years of storage. Correct. Supply. Yeah. Over 20 years. Mm -hmm. That's not bad. Maybe we should tell the court that. Yeah. <laughs> so our total um, total we have in storage is about 249,815 acre feet. Adding to the table, adding to that table A, um, brings our total uh, storage and storage supplies to um, 258,795 acre feet. Additionally, um, we have a contract with Palmdale Water um, Water District um, for the return of 3,333 acre feet. Uh, pending the next allocation, uh, we'll decide what we want to do with that water. Um, they have until 2035 to return it. And we do have uh, Central Coast Water. Um, we have that 100 acre feet scheduled for um, January of this year. That's the end of my presentation. Any questions? Oh. On, um, so Joshua Basin at zero, is that because they did have water in storage and now they took it? Yeah, we've, we transferred. And um, then High Desert Water District does have, I think, a storage agreement, but I guess they're at zero? Yes. They, been they yeah, they, um, so they are planning on purchasing, um, for their area, uh, 2,600 acre feet and, um, they want to do an additional 500 in um, um, the Ames Ratchet Basin. Oh, of that 3,100, they want to take 500? Mm-hmm. Then I should lower mine to zero. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then on that uh, Article 12 and 14 water, um, I also, 
you know, prompted by you, Adnan, just I think it's fabulous that staff is looking at all angles to make the best of it. And um, so you're saying when the state has an outage, you, you had ordered water, so you had to do it beforehand, and then they couldn't get it to you, and so that allows you to uh, keep hold of it, different from the 56. So I just want to thank you for that. That's great. No, that concludes my call and question. Okay. Um, updates? No, I got oh, you have a question? Uh -huh. I, I, I have a question, some comments. So if this is correct that Alto has eight years of uh, supply, I think that's something we really need to message. And the reason why is, one, our constituents uh, don't understand even what our job is, and we need to get that out. But two, we seem to have a problem at the uh, where water comes in at Deep Creek and how dynamic that area is. As soon as that starts drying up, we start getting to be blamed by the residents out there of their low water levels. Yet, we have done things in the past and in the future. We can't help everybody, but we're, we're doing the things that we can do as an agency. And I think that's just important because uh, during the last drought, they were complaining loud and that uh, we needed to do something. And it could have been also that with these historic droughts that maybe they need to have their wells deeper, um, those type of things. I just think it's important that we message that we how proactive that we're doing. And I don't necessarily mean in a press release or something, but being able when we're before um, city councils, uh, when we're out speaking at the different service clubs, at different things, really getting that um, the word out of what we're doing right now, that we're years ahead working on the next drought. We don't know when that will be. It could be starting now or it could be, but we're working on it now so they know that we're doing our job so that when we do get to the end where we're starting to, they realize we've done everything that we can and they're not just blaming us that we, we've done what, what our job is and if there's some historic drought, um, then if we have to really do rationing, then there's a good reason for it. That's a great point and we've seen the last three, four years, uh, the full extent of the extremes we can see um, and we have a story to tell that we can explain and describe. You know, this is how this is how we should expect to receive our water supply and how to, how we have to manage um, because of uh, uh, you know changing climate, changing hydrology, um, and um, so we have we have quite a story to tell. Well, and it, it can't be just telling the story one time. We have lots of stories to tell as an agency, and it just needs to be part of um, of our toolbox of when we're messaging that we work different messages out there and this just being one of them that we ongoing that hey here's where we're at in storage the people that the constituents and people that live in this area really understand this is our job this is what we've done and we can only do so much if there's something historic if you have rationing it's either the government making a decision that is rash and putting stipulations on us that really uh, we don't need, or it's really bad and we've done uh, what we have under our control. But I think it needs to be ongoing, regular, and again, this not being the only message. We have multiple messages that we just get out there on a regular basis when we're speaking before groups. It doesn't have to be long. Just here's a couple of things we just want to remind everybody so that it's just regular coming out that the, uh, the public really understands um, that we've done a good job as an agency storing water. Sorry for that ramble. Thank you. Okay. Now we can have the updates. We're going to start with water resources. Sounds good. Yes, we'll go over to Tony. 
director of water resources the show and tell testing one two I just wanted to say real quick, just as a reminder to the um, uh, committee and anyone who might be listening, that the master plan is still ongoing. We've completed the first round of reaching out to the area stakeholders. Uh, some of the board members are actually involved in that. We're crunching all, all those discussions, and we're going to come up with a, a future plan of attack in a uh, committee meeting near you soon. So just a reminder, and then Wes has an update on banking. Hey, good morning. Uh, can you hear me? There you go. Um, it's, this is working? This is working too? Okay. Stay away from feedback loops. Um, the, we, we received um, four proposals for the groundwater banking pilot test. We interviewed three uh, teams of firms for that, and we're in the process of, of reviewing all of that and uh, calling reference. OS day, right? Is this OS day or what? This is the West Victorville pilot test for our groundwater banking program. Close to the microphone, please. All right, can you hear me now? <laughs> uh, so yeah, so we're in the process of, of making a decision there and that will be coming to uh, committee and board soon. Good. Next we have state water resources field update. None. No, no update today, but we can go right over to State Water Project. Water update. Project update, Christy. Thank you. Um, so uh, January through March, uh, we expect warmer temperatures, warmer than average temperatures with above average precipitation. We're expecting to see a widespread uh, rain throughout uh, California by this weekend. Uh, DWR is playing it safe, um, issuing this statement at the beginning of January. With above average reservoir levels, El Nino conditions, and a dry start to the water year, California is preparing for flood or dry conditions in the months ahead. <laughs> That's nice to know. Yeah, nice <laughs> to know. <laughs> so these graphs were all generated uh, January 9th. We, we still have about three more weeks till we know the full impact of January rains. But you can see we're um, falling far behind um, falling uh, far short of the average precipitation throughout the state. By this time of the year, um, we, we should expect to see um, the average uh, precipitation uh, of 27 um, inches. Um, currently, we're at 59% of average for January 9th, with um, only 12 and a half inches total. And in the um, central Sierras, um, we um, should expect to see about 20 um, inches total average for the year. Um, instead, it's only 5.9 inches and 41% of average for January 9th. And in the um, Southern Sierras, um, the 30, we're at 37% of average for January 9th with only 3.7 inches um, coming in. Um, and we expect to see about 10 inches total uh, average. Reservoirs are maintaining healthy levels of about 60 to 70 percent capacity. Uh, snowpack has just begun. Uh, the first big snowstorm of the season uh, rolled through the Sierras uh, last week.
So we've all heard about the DWR's first snow survey. It was a, a little disappointing. Um, it was conducted January 2nd uh, for a total of seven and a half inches of snow depth, a snow water equivalent of three inches, which is just 30% of average for the location. And um, the um, snowpack is just 25% of average compared to 185% of for last year. Um, as I said, this data was pulled down January 9th uh, before last week's snowstorms, which was the first significant event of the season. Um, San Luis is at 1.2 million acre feet, 58% um, of total capacity and 88% of historical averages. You can see here um, where we really had a spike um, in March, which started um, off the Article 21 event and uh, began in March and it lasted for 15 weeks. This is a recap of our deliveries. Um, total local deliveries were 99,292 acre feet, which includes Table A, Article 21, and carryover water. Uh, we sold West Side um, District 25. 25,000 acre feet for a little less than 4 million acre feet. And um, we're still waiting to tally up with DWR delivery schedules for the month of December. Our meter, reader, our meter reads can vary between um, DWR and MWA. We usually come out a little ahead and we'll balance out to the um, DWR December schedule. And that's it. Hey, Christy, any questions? No. no. Mike? I have a couple comments. Um, the, the, the last page of your presentation um, is amazing. Almost 100,000 acre feet in 2023. Um, I think um, this committee would like to see uh, numbers that we could pass on to the board that show what 2023 was to our area. Uh, not only from a water importation, water delivery, but from a financial uh, backing. In 2020, 21, 22, we sold $23 million worth of our table A to an outside entity. In the next year, we sold $8 million. And I think this year we're again going to try to sell $8 million again, or was it $3.7 million? We and don't know we yet. We sold a lot no. of our table A entitlement. So we got to the point where when water was available, we could buy it at zero cost the customers for water purchase only. Um, so I think an example of that in 2023 would be uh, representatory of what we did this last year uh, that we've been planning for years uh, by buying the additional table A entitlement. Because up until this year, we didn't even come close to taking this amount of water in one calendar year. It's a little bit difficult with the financials because we budget from June to June. So, uh, and we deliver water from January to December. Um, but if MWA is hopefully gonna sell the state water project as a viable alternative to uh, pumpage in our area, this, this type of program has to, has to survive, even though we're not in control of what the state is. Um, so some numbers that, that pop out of me, uh, we, we basically sold $40 million worth of water in the last three years but didn't get any water for it. And this is the first time we've taken that money and actually put it in the ground in our area.
for our, our uh, constituents. And I think that's a, that's a, a major milestone at this agency. Um, and kudos to staff for getting to this point. Uh, it took a lot of combined efforts, not only from the management staff, but making sure the pipelines are all working. I know the DWR tried to thwart us a couple times during the, the last year with the pear blossom and fixing Silverwood, but uh, in general, to get that amount of water out of the facilities that we have is, is, is amazing. So in the next five years, if we don't get any more rain, at least we've done the best we can with what's available to us to use, and we've met that, that challenge. So uh, that, that last little deal is uh, bigger than, than what it appears to be. That, that's my comment. Thanks. I just wanted to add another kind of way I think about it to here. You know, the, the $24 million raised in 2021 for selling about 24,000 acre feet was converted into 100,000 acre feet of import for the same amount of water. So we, we you know, four to one, we were able to, to leverage. And so that's the sort of, that's a indication of the extremes we're dealing with um, and the challenge of storage. Um, the agency is sort of blessed to have its groundwater basins as a tool um, to store and rely on water uh, when it's abundant. So being able to physically bring that amount of water in is a great test case, shows that we can respond. Um, but it, uh, it also proves that, you know, in the drier years, we can rely less on those imports, transfer that water instead um, to build back up so we can be prepared for a potential year like this again. I just need to jump in. It's, it's something you see so rarely in a government agency being able to think this way. I'm sure there's people who have thought this way but haven't been able to get it enacted. This is just so rare for government to be um, to do something proactive and finding a way to make money so we don't have to raise taxes. And uh, I think that's a great analogy of the four to one that um, between both you and Mike bringing up. And we, we need to message that, that we're we're trying to run our agency, even though we're a government agency, is much like a business and things that make sense instead of saying, oh, we can't do this, so we're going to raise taxes. We're, we're not doing that. Thank you. Okay. Um the R cubed one, or do we already do that? State water project deliveries and R cubed summary. Yes. That's you again. Yes. Oh. All right. Um, so the month of December doesn't include the Silverwood deliveries, um, but um, total annually we delivered. Um, Total annually is 93,259 acre-feet. And the R-cube deliveries, um, we finished out the year delivering 5,971 acre-feet. That's it. Any comments on this portion? I just have one. Where's Tony? Um, I know we talked about this. Uh, I can't remember we talked about it at the board meeting or not. Um, Obviously, since we released water out of our facilities all year long along the uh, river proper, and we did receive some natural runoff, my question is, when we determine what goes into which sub-basin along the river, um, there obviously was some determination through some calculation based on natural runoff, what, was, what we were getting, what they were releasing from Silverwood naturally, and combined with the fact that we were releasing water from Silverwood and Rock Springs and other, I don't know if we had too much come out at uh, Lenwood or not, but uh, have you set up now some pretty good parameters for we can track 
uh, when we're doing combination releases at different facilities along the river as with natural runoff? And is there limitations to, to, to that, those parameters based on the severity and duration of a storm? Yeah, that's a modeling exercise and we're still developing that. Okay, so these numbers, even though they're, you've published them now, I mean, and they're exact numbers, like down to the acre foot, um, we're gonna live with these for 2023. Are you, are you uh, uh, Chair Limbaugh, are you referring to the amount of accumulated in MWA storage? Yeah, like how much is in Alto, how much is in Central, yeah, so, so, how much so is in Baja? The current treatment, the current approach is we, uh, where it's released and what a sub area is where, it, where it's accounted for. We do have under the policy, import water management policy, we have a mechanism by which we look at basin health. So um, we have a sort of uh, a way to catch on the back end if that water physically accumulated elsewhere because of influences. Um, but um, that's the simple treatment we have right now. But it's currently an exploration that we're that we're doing to see if, if we want to be accounting for it separately. I, I guess, way. yeah, and, and that's really what, what you summarize is correct. I guess the, the thing would be if at deep, if at uh, Rock Springs we're seeing uh, 100 CFS versus 1,000 CFS and we're dumping water in out of Silverwood, how does that water travel differently given the given a natural flow conditions? And that's what you're working on, I believe. Okay. Correct. And we have the tools to do that? Yes, we do. Oh, that's good. That'll be very interesting. Piggybacking water is always a very successful way to, number one, share in the wealth of, of importation of water, but also uh, meet the requirements of the judgment, which is a, a, a very good tool in the future, I believe. Anything else? Thanks. Engineering update. Mr. Simpson. All righty. Uh, yes, if you can give me that, Chris. Great. Good morning, uh, Mr. Chair, members of the committee. Uh, today, uh, uh, Stefan Longoria was scheduled to provide this presentation. He's our senior engineer. Uh, fortunately, he's out on the job site now performing some inspections on our behalf. Um, so I cannot take credit for this, uh, but I'll do my best in uh, presenting the information. So this is uh, just an engineering update on the R-cube leak that we are uh, currently experiencing. <clears throat> if you recall back in, I think it was early or mid-December of last year, I provided uh, just a quick update to the board uh, at that time, indicating that we, we did have an emergency leak on the R-cube system. Uh, the leak occurred on November 25th, which was the weekend of Thanksgiving. At that time, um, a staff had uh, identified the leak and was able to isolate that location of the pipeline and turn the water off uh, to stop the leak for the time being. This happened to be at the intersection of Mariposa Road and Main, or excuse me, Mesa Street in Hesperia. And if you look off to uh, the right-hand side here, you can see this area is where we're, we're kind of talking about. And then I think I got two more slides here that kind of hone in on this and yeah, give you a little more information, a little more detailed information. So on this slide here, you can see uh, Bear Valley Road is here. 15 Freeway is right in here. Here's Main Street over in this area here. This uh, rainbow colored uh, line here, this is the R-cubed system. Uh, this over here, this rainbow colored line is uh, the Oro Grande Wash uh, pipeline. 
So please don't confuse that with our R-cube system here. But um, you can see where the leak is uh, in the area here where this red circle is. And if you look on the right-hand side, this is a really uh, honed-in view. Uh, staff was able to isolate uh, one valve here, just on the west side of the 15 freeway, and isolate another valve right in this area east of the 15 freeway. The actual leak is right in this area here. It was, we were very fortunate. Uh, we were able to, we're not there yet, but we're working on it. <laughs> All joking aside, uh, no, it would be nice to have something like that. Um, so I, I did report at that time that uh, on Friday, December 1st of last year, staff had cut into the pipeline just uh, um, at an area that we weren't as deep. And we inserted a camera to video the inside of the pipe to be able to get an idea of where that leak may be occurring. Again, you can see here is a 15 freeway. We have 54-inch casing, 54-inch diameter casing that runs from about this edge of uh, on the east side of the 15. It runs all the way underneath the 15 freeway, about 382 feet, and terminates here. That's where the casing is located. So in the event of a leak, the intent is to have that leak on either side of the 15 freeway. <clears throat> well, the leak was coming up in this area here, so we assumed it was going to be on this side of the pipeline. Let me go back again. In this area here, we're about six feet to the top of the main, and it uh, goes from six feet to about 18 feet to the top of the main in this location here. So within about a 24, 25-foot section, and we go from six feet to the top of the main to about 18 feet to the top of the main. That's the reason why we wanted to have it uh, cameraed, just to be able to get an idea as to what we were up against. So when we cameraed this back in December, uh, here's a photo of what we found. And we were really looking for kind of an aha moment where we seen maybe a two and a half inch, three inch hole. And unfortunately, we did not see that. So it was a little uh, puzzling as to what we found. This is at the top of the, the pipeline itself. And in this particular photo, you can almost see uh, rocks, what we assumed at the time. Um, you can see some of the mortar uh, concrete here that had fallen off the pipeline as well. Based off that information that we had, we had made uh, some decisions as to potential repairs. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand up real quick and kind of show the piece of pipe out here and show some demonstration or use this as a demonstration here. Testing one, two, testing. Okay, here we go. I, I feel like I should wear the neck one because I can really get animated. <laughs> testing one, two. Oh, this is going to be good. Okay, here we go. Can everyone hear me okay? My compressor is off. <laughs> so... I'll try to stand on this side. I apologize. So um, this part of the pipe is on the, going towards the west side of the 15. This is on the east side going towards the Appi Hesperia area. <clears throat> when we identified it in that video there or in that photo there, you can see the camera was down in the middle of the pipe 
shining upward. And this is what we were seeing right here in that lower section. Thank you, Tess Bay, right in that area there. So at the time, this is not a, a typical leak that you would expect to see on a 12-year-old pipeline. So that's why I caused some concern as to is that exactly the is that exactly the leak that we're looking for? But we knew there was some concern. So at that time, we had enough information that we knew we had to dig this up and find out what was going on. Again, this area, we're probably talking 20 feet from here to the top of the ground, the, the surface. Obviously, to make a repair, you have to dig deeper than that. You have to get welders in and around that area as well. The casing, the 54-inch casing, stopped right about here. So in order to make that rep this repair, you'd have to cut the casing back as well. That casing being 54 inch in diameter, in order to weld that back on, we're probably another six feet deeper than this. So when you're that deep, shoring comes to mind to make sure you have proper shoring to make a safe uh, repair. With this information, the intent was to be able to go in and cut this section, this bad section of pipe out. We knew the pipe's only 12, 13 years old, so we assumed it was just a failure, whether it be due to an installation or manufacturing defects. So the plan was to cut this section of pipe out and put what we call a butt strap, two halves of steel around this and weld it back up and mortar coat the inside. That was the, that was the thought initially. Um, so if you can move on. So once we cut into this, go one more time, Tessie, please. One more slide, uh, one more, sorry. So once we cut into this, you can see uh, the section, um, again, our intent was to cut this section out, relieve any kind of tension or pressure, and weld in a butt strap. Over that two week period, we had uh, more time to look at the video itself, and there were some other concerns that we seen within the pipeline from the video. At that point, we decided to cut out about a three and a half foot section. This section here, we cut this out. And this was cut out, I think, two Fridays ago. And you can see the section that was cut out there. Yeah, Tessie, please show that. So that's the section that we cut out that you see sitting here today. We actually went into the pipeline to the west and went underneath the freeway about 400 feet worth and inspected that. Didn't see uh, any severe damage that we could see visually. We also went to the east side that we weren't expecting to find any problems, but because the pipeline was open, we figured we'd take advantage of this. So we went to the east, which would be to the left of me. Tesfaye, can you show Rom's standing on the bottom photo there? Come down, go to the, yeah. So that, I'm standing right there. To the left of me is to the east, so this part of the pipeline here. We crawled into that thing and about 10 feet into it before it 45 degrees up, we noticed the pipe was oblonged. You can see, Tesfaye, show where the concrete was spalling on the right-hand side. Go to the right-hand side, photo, yep. Right in that area, you can see where the concrete was spalling. That was at about three o'clock and nine o'clock of the pipeline. <clears throat> the pipeline measured on the inside diameter 39 inches um, wide by 33 inches tall. So you can see how much the pipe had oblonged. So what caused this leak or caused the failure? At this time, we can only make assumptions. As you can see in this area here, there's a gash of probably close to 12 inches wide and about an inch, inch and a quarter open. You can see a lot of erosion, a lot of uh, sand that was churning while this thing was leaking. And the metal is very smooth. 
If you look on the inside of the pipeline, these pipe joints were welded on the inside of the pipeline. So on the inside, it's fully welded. Well, you can see from the top portion here, it had separated. So the internal weld failed as well. The outside, right here where it was split, it's welded. So I assume during construction, someone had put a weld on here to hold the pipe in place while they continue to build the rest of it. Again, this is all assumption based off of what we found. Because we had seen some settling in the past and we had a lot of rain, we're assuming at this point there were some compaction issues and the 45 degree fitting going to the east, running upward, that whole area had settled to a point where it put some undue stress on this. And because this area was welded, tack welded up above, this material more than likely tore or got thin until it completely failed and we had the leak. Once we had the leak, it saturated the whole area behind this area and caused the rest of this to fail on the inside. The reason why we think some of that had happened, if you look up here where the water was rushing out, it's very smooth. You gotta be careful because there are some sharp areas, but it's very smooth and, and rounded. When you look on the inside where the weld had cracked and you put your finger in there, you could feel that whole entire inside where it separated is still very sharp to some degree. So assuming water wasn't rushing through that when the leak had occurred. Because of that, our idea or thought process of going into this and making a repair using butt straps, that far exceeded our expectations at that time. Again, this was identified about two weeks ago. So in this photo here, um, you can kind of see the area going to the east. Show the east side there, Tesfe. No, go down. So show the east side of this. So to the right here of our screen, that's going eastbound. That's uh, this portion here. Um, you can see here in this profile, you can see the top of the pipeline is about six feet from here, from there to the top. But you can see the drop section where it's all the way at the bottom here. This is the area we're working with right now. Again, it's about 20 feet or so to the top of the main. Um, because of that, we noticed a lot of deformation of pipe in this uh, 45 section and coming upward. So at that point, we made a determination that we need to replace that pipe up to near this valve area, if not to the valve itself. We're talking about um, probably 42 feet, 45 feet worth of piping that needs to be replaced, maybe a little bit longer than that. Um, so we made that decision that we need to get pipe ordered as soon as possible and get this repaired. Now, if you can go back, test a few slides. Keep going, uh, right here. Okay, so as you recall, High Desert Underground and Applevite Construction, they are two approved contractors for ongoing maintenance and emergency repairs. We reached out to High Desert Underground um, to come in and, and, may, and make this repair for the butt strap. Again, once we got into this, we realized that we need to make the repair going eastbound. Um, because we made an entry, a confined space entry, underneath the freeway, we also needed to have moving air. Um, go to the next slide, uh, a couple slides down, Tessie. Uh, right here, yep. We needed uh, some way to move air from the east side of the freeway all the way to the west side of the freeway. The way this was designed originally did not allow us to pull any kind of air or any, there was no air vacs, no blow offs in this particular section. 
So we had to, about a week and a half ago, we cut in an air vac on the west side of the 15 freeway so we can pull air through this whole underground um, piping so we can make a safe entry and make sure we had adequate uh, air ventilation during this repair, inspection, and any other cleaning that we may have to perform. Not only does this air vac work now for this particular purpose, when we charge this line, flush it, chlorinate it, we will use this air vac for that as well. Any future repairs that need to be performed, if we have to shut down the pipeline between these two valves, this will also allow air to be um, introduced to have a proper uh, drainage of this pipeline as well. Now at the upper slide of the screen, you can see the shoring device that was installed. When we go out and make repairs, anything up to 20 feet, you don't have to have engineered shoring. It's not an OSHA requirement. However, anything deeper than 20 feet, you have to have engineered shoring. Unfortunately, this photo here, and I think this was from a drone, if I'm not mistaken, Trevor. So this photo here doesn't really do it justice. That's about 16 and a half, 17 feet uh, wide square box of shoring. The walls on that, they range anywhere from about six inches wide at the top all the way down to close to 12 inches at the bottom of this. That ladder there you can see is probably a 28 foot ladder close to it, maybe even 30 feet at that point. Um, obviously to dig a, a, a trench this deep, it's not just a backhoe, you need some heavy equipment as well. So we have a large excavator on site, um, some large shoring as well. The shoring that we had originally um, had designed was for a 16 by 16 opening to make this butt strap repair. After finding out that we, the, the damage was much further than this, we have to extend the shoring as well to encapsulate the rest of the 45 that's gonna be built on this as well. So that shoring is being delivered, I believe tomorrow, so we can extend um, the shored area. Just to let you know what we've done up to this point, um, because we are concerned, move forward, uh, Tesfay, please, uh, one more, okay. Kind of show the area uh, that we are concerned about due to a lack of compaction, if you could show that area. Keep going, right there. Please show the area that we're of concern with the compaction, lack of compaction. So if you can imagine when they installed the 54-inch large casing underneath the freeway, they had to dig a pit at least as deep as that that, we're, that we've excavated recently and as long as about 40 or 45 feet. So that was all excavated at one time. So when this pipeline went in, we weren't installing it against native material. It was all excavated material when they did the actual boring. So then that back that was backfilled and then the pipeline was then installed. So at this point, we don't know if that was, comp uh, that was properly compacted. Uh, we're assuming it wasn't to some degree. And then when you have a leak of water, adding to poorly compacted soils, all the fines consolidate and it starts to settle at that point. So the area of concern, please show it again, Tesfe, a lack of compaction. So that area of concern was all in this area that Tesfe is marking out a lack of compaction. That area is a probably 35, 45 feet long and about 15, 16, 17 feet wide. So our concern was if we're gonna make this repair, we wanna make sure we go back in to that depth and make sure we get 
adequate compaction and not just assume that that's what had happened prior. So over the last two, well, since mid of last week, High Desert Underground went in and we removed that soil up into the point where we thought we were back to native material and went back in with short lifts and compacted that. Um, we have someone from Merrill Johnson performing compaction tests in uh, anywhere from one foot to three foot lifts. In addition to Stefan Longoria, who has extensive experience in compaction, we have him on site as well overseeing this too. So we wanna make sure we get adequate compaction before we redig the trench again and install the new piping. So that's where we're at right now. We're anticipating the new pipe um, probably late this week, early next week. Uh, once we get that new pipe, we're hoping to have that already dug out. So we're trying to use our time wisely while we're waiting on material. That'll start getting installed probably early next week, the actual installation, the welding of that. And we're hoping by the end of next week that we'll have this thing welded up. That's not the end of the project. Obviously, we have to get that all welded in, mortar coat everything properly, fill the line, test the line, make sure we don't have any leaks, then start flushing the line and, and have it uh, properly chlorinated and tested for bacteriological activity before we could actually put that into uh, into uh, the system again. So we're hoping with all of that, we're hoping that we can have this completed by uh, early to mid-February at this point. So I think that concludes the update. Here for any questions that may come up. Dr. Page. Um, Mr. Simpson, you're not done yet. Remind yes, me, I'm sure it's been brought up and I've just forgotten. How much have we spent so far and how much are we expecting this just seeing all that shoring and a lot and, yeah are, are we yes, talking sir. over half a million dollars by now or closer to a million so i'm cautious as to to throw numbers out there but i Come do on, know man. we well, did ask high desert underground to give us uh, just kind of an update and that was as of january 11th um we were right around a hundred and oh i just assumed it was even more so. hundred and ten thousand dollars up to january 11th now that doesn't include the material. The pipe material is right around $47,000 just for these large pieces of pipe. These are fittings that have to be fabricated uh, from out of pipe. They just don't form these and roll them. Uh, so they have to be fabricated and they are being fabricated as we speak. Um, that was Northwest Pipe that put that in? Um, I don't test for was it, who was it the original matter. material supplier for this project? Uh, Northwest. Northwest Pipe was the original supplier for this material. Um, the original set of plans called for um, 180, 179 thousandths wall thickness. Um, and just to kind of give you an idea, 188 thousandths is 3 sixteenths of an inch thick. That was the original design. Um, the material that we have coming is quarter inch wall, so 250 thousandths. So we're going, going in with a little thicker material as well great for uh, structural and then any kind of uh, corrosion allowance that does allow for a little more corrosion allowance. And, and, and Mike, I believe we're going to do an insurance claim. Is that what I remember? On this particular project, from my understanding, insurance no. does not carry this. That's my, cover this. That's my understanding. And do you have anything to add to that? No, we've been exploring. I think you were exploring our, um, uh, you know, warranty provisions as well as in any potential insurance recovery. So we're exploring what we have, but I don't think it's going to play out that way, I think it's going to be burdened by the agency as part of its regular O&M. So even if there's compaction, there's not a someone to fall back on the uh, contractor or 
No? Okay. Doesn't need to be discussed here. But that, that's, that's my understanding at this right. point. We have had some other repairs on, on the RQ pipeline, and it was my understanding at that time that we weren't able to go back on the contractor, and that was four or five years ago. Okay. So, so at this point, we do have a, a budget, rough budgetary number of about $105,000 from High Desert Underground. That included the shoring um, excavator for about a month. Um, doesn't include all the labor for a full month, but up to about January 11th. And then in addition, we have the material, the pipe material too, of about $47,000. We still will need some more pipe material as well for some small ancillary stuff, blow off valves that are six inch, uh, four inch air vac and so on. Um, uh, in addition to that, because we have additional shoring, uh, which is coming, that does not include the additional amount of shoring. So we're expecting that to increase as well. But um, what I say we're halfway through the project, I don't think we're halfway through the project yet. I would say by the end of uh, mid of next week, we'd, I would consider it probably halfway through the project. Thank you. Yes, sir. Marina? Yes. I guess one of the fortunate things is you're not having supply problems like you were with the last big repair on the Mojave. Um, or was it Mojave River Pipeline, I guess? Mojave River Pipeline. Trying to get 48-inch was very difficult. Uh, fortunately, at that time, Northwest Pipe had a, a piece of 48-inch pipe laying around. Uh, United, United Fab uh, Fabricators down in the Fontana Riverside area, they had some 36-inch pipe there. Um, and my understanding, it met all of AWWA's requirements for potable drinking water. Um, so we, we acted quickly on that to secure it as well. Thank you. Yes. The uh, joint uh, outside the jacking is, is welded for how long? How many joints are welded outside the jacking? So... Um, my understanding, if you look at this... Two uh, joints, one joint, most of them are gasketed, right? Under, my understanding, underneath uh, the, the freeway, that's it's all welded. welded. But and how far out is it welded? Um, I believe 850 linear feet okay. is total. So, so, so we got for all intents and purposes, no movement, very little movement. We, we should have very little movement um, going... Um, well, one suggestion um, for what, what you put back, if you do decide to make it firmer, uh, you could use slurry. And that is a dis that's a discussion we're going to have with our contractor later on this afternoon. We've, we've had that discussion early on, um, even before we were thinking of going. I mean, you may not have to go back for settlement. Correct. Fill the haunches, uh, so there's no voids in that area. Second as well. thing, is there any way to measure... Uh, longitudinally along the line away from the jacking location, uh, any differential settlement that may have already occurred in other sections of that line? Is there any way to do that that's easy? I don't that, know of any way, is there? There has been some discussion as to, we have a very similar situation uh, at the 395 crossing as well. We don't have 36 inches. It was pipe. also jacked? Jack and board in case, correct. So, okay. There is some concern, and, and we have, the, our guys have done some recent um, valve repairs, or not valve repairs, uh, valve maintenance, and found some settling to the above pertinences. 
a lot of times when you come across these, you think uh, surface settling is, you know, within the last four or five Could years. be a number of reasons. There's a number yeah. of reasons. And being a drop section, there could be an issue there for, as For well. this occur that close to the fixed pipe in the jacking section, it definitely is a, a problem. A problem. And we yeah. have a hinge point at that point because yeah. the, the, the jacking was bored encased where the rest of this was open trench. And, and so. being welded, it's much more rigid than... Than the gasket. I mean, the gasket. You're only talking small movements, but that's all it takes to start to propagate a crack. I mean, you, you look at that. Um, I mean, it looks almost like tension. Uh, well, tension failure well, started by a tension failure textbook, right? That's where the point where you're going to have the most tension, right? In, in that compaction, if there's a differential between the raised section and and the the the. the and, and to be clear, this is not the only jack pipe we have. We have other sections of jacking, but if you don't take care to secure the pipe around. I mean, it's not gonna move in the jacking casing. Gets like a, right. it's like a double pipe. And if you have um, a long run, you don't really have that central point of max torque, you know, where you have that tension failure like that. Usually um, you would see something like this if there was an erosion problem and the right. pipe lost its support through another reason, like a, 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 a ephemeral stream washed out portion of it and it started to tilt off. But uh, uh, Yes, and we did not have that. The other thing that, I bring to your attention, because of the settling and the pipe deformity on the east side, it definitely caused us uh, some concern to go all the way across the freeway and look at the same design, very similar design on the east side and the west side, because we still have to come up to a normal uh, level. So we wanted to go all the way up to the, the west side as well and look at those 45 fittings and see if we'd seen any cracking of the mortar coating. Again, we don't have x-ray vision, but we performed that inspection about two weeks ago. And we'll probably make one more inspection before we wrap this up. But there is some concern. Do we have the same thing happening on the other side? We couldn't see any kind of indication on the inside of the pipeline that would give us that uh, indication. And we didn't see anything uh, above ground, that any settling at that intersection. We haven't seen that since I've been here, but we have seen some of that on this uh, the east side here. I mean, obviously, if the repair stays under half half a million, that's nice, okay? But um, maybe, and I'm sure you guys have thought of this already, some type of program to investigate any type of things that you might think under, would undergo this process again. It's a difficult thing, but then it's a matter of how much can you spend. It's kind of like, you know, checking the pipe for cathodic protection too. How many holes do you dig around a 40-mile pipe to figure out where you're going to get corrosion. Exactly. Um, but given the fact that this occurred at a place where it was jacked or firm support for the pipe uh, it might be uh, a merit some type of investigation for a preventative. And even if you do find it, sometimes the cure may cost more than wait until it leaks. You know, to, to actually excavate this pipe and, and redo it to make sure that it doesn't settle differentially uh, that can that's cost money too there are some costs so, uh, but the big thing is it wasn't a catastrophic uh, leak like it was a gas line it'd be much worse and fortunately we were able to isolate it with the valving that that was good and right. most jackings do have the isolation valve on both sides correct because you're jacking to prevent uh, uh, anything that would happen to the facility that's on the surface yes sir so. okay good Great. good luck all right Thank no you. more we don't want to see this anymore <laughs> And for those of you that aren't here that are on the thing, they, they have the uh, actual pipe sample right in front of us here. So uh, we're going to donate it to the local playground, clean it <laughs> up. Uh, okay.
Anything else? Okay, operation and maintenance update. Mr. Doug. Good morning, everyone. Okay, starting off here, uh, going to the Morongo Basin Pipeline. We made a repair on an air release valve lateral in Johnson Valley. Uh, this is a one-inch lateral. It's copper, uh, pipe or tape wrapped, and uh, the tape wrap failed and allowed the soil to corrode the 90-degree elbow fitting on the lateral, and uh, inevitably it, it blew out and caused the leak. Well, we were able to dig down to it and uh, isolate the isolate the lateral, and then come back and um, and replace the, the 90 degree elbow, and uh, it their release is back in service now. Continuing on with the Morongo Basin pipeline, we also exercised all the inline valves, completed all our customer deliveries, and also conducted uh, Deep Creek hydro maintenance, including. Um, greasing the bearings on the generator and the turbine, as well as um, calibrating the positions, the position transducers for the needle valves. So now for more infrastructure good news. <laughs> we started doing our sleeve valve inspections. These inspections include all of the valves that were in service last year. So far, we've done Deep Creek and Cassia, and we found significant damage to both of those valves. Uh, engineering is working with the valve manufacturer to come up with a repair strategy, and so far, it looks like it's complete rebuild on both valves. Um, still need to do some more inspecting on uh, a few other of the valves on the Mojave River pipeline, so I'll be reporting on those at the next update. Before I go into the, um, the damage, I just wanted to kind of go over how these valves work if you're not familiar with them. So they're, they're a pressure reducing valve and the way that they work is that um, water enters into the sleeve housing here and mind you these valves are huge. Uh, the Deep Creek valve is 48 inch at the flanged ends and the narrow section is 30 inch and then the cassia valve is 36 inch on the flange ends and 20 inch on the narrow section water enters into the the sleeve housing here and then it goes through the sleeve through um, holes that are that are uh, drilled through on all around the sleeve itself and uh, what happens is the water flows through these holes creates little streams all of these streams collide together in the middle of the sleeve and what this collision does is it dissipates the energy and thus reduces the pressure that comes out of the, the valve. So the damage that we, we observed during the inspection was erosion on the sleeve itself, which is kind of typical, but we had some unusual damage as well. Um, we had severe cracking all the way around on the front edge of um, this gate here. And what this gate is for is it 
it's what controls the flow going through the valve. Uh, there's these there's screws on either side of the gate that will drive the gate across this darker section, which is the, the sleeve, and control the flow. So this gate right here, we had uh, severe cracking on the front side of the gate, and then plus we had where the screws connect to the gate, the bolts that make that connection on both sides of Deep Creek, on the Deep Creek valve, they broke off, they sheared off completely. And on the Cassia valve, one side sheared off. So just to give you an example, this is a picture of the, the Deep Creek valve at the bottom of the, underneath the graphic there. And you can see the, those are the screws that are on the sides of the valve, that silver part, and then the screw is inside of there. So this is the Deep Creek valve. This is the inside of it. Here's that erosion that you see on the sleeve, which is pretty typical. But uh, here you can see cracking on the gate itself. And this goes all the way around the entire gate. Talking to the manufacturer, he thinks that what the problem was is because the sleeve did uh, erode a little bit, it caused a... a uh, more of a gap in between the sleeve and the gate and having that bigger gap as the water flowed across in between the two surfaces it caused vibration and that vibration ultimately uh, caused the hardened surfaces of the uh, gate to fracture and the same the same vibration also caused the um, the gate screw connection bolts to shear off completely as well. Yeah, it's pretty pretty massive. Uh, so go moving on to Cassia, you can kind of see the same kind of cracking, not as extreme as Deep Creek, but a whole lot less water went through this valve than it did at Deep Creek. Um, erosion on the sleeve itself was was present, but not 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 that bad. But you can see here that <clears throat> at the end of the screw, you can see this like ring that's at the edge there. That ring is supposed to be attached to this disc right here. And this whole, this disc is supposed to be attached to that uh, tab that's on the gate there. So it completely just grenaded. Yeah. So uh, yeah, more to come on all that stuff. And moving on to R cubed, uh, we were able to. This is a picture of the leak. This is when me and Curtis got over there that fateful day. Um, we completed all of our annual pipeline maintenance. We exercised uh, air vacuum valves and flushed uh, the blow offs. There was the section between booster, the booster station, and um, West of the 15, where we isolated the leak, we weren't able to get that section just because we couldn't. We would we didn't want to drain the line as much as much as we possibly could. Um, so, as you know, the pipeline is completely shut down, uh, but we're still able to take our routine samples on the system, except for turnout four, which that line was a little bit dewatered. Uh, during the whole isolation process. But as soon as we get the pipeline back in service, we'll be able to start collecting those samples again. Uh, we're keeping a real close eye on our water quality 
Um, our chlorine residuals are slowly dropping, but they are still acceptable. And we do have some contingency plans that we're kicking around if we start seeing water quality issues arise. So that will do it for the update. I'm open to any questions you may have. Thanks, Doug. Mike? I have a couple. Um, with regards to the Bailey valves, um, they are pretty proprietary. And uh, it wasn't a lot when we decided to go with those to put in this. And we always knew Cassia would eventually change to something. So it was kind of like a makeshift design. Um, now that we have the hydro, though, at Deep Creek, it, it's pretty much a foregone conclusion that the valve at Deep Creek release can be isolated and we can use the hydro anytime we want. Is that, that's correct, right? That's correct. Okay. So, and Deep Creek does not get used a whole bunch unless the hydro is not working, right? You would not necessarily deliver at Deep Creek if you were going to go for hydro generation. Like, like in, in, um, unless like, you needed the volume. Exactly. That's okay. what, that's because we're only limited to, to 20 CFS on the hydro to where we can go up to 65, 75 on the sleeves. So. But it's easy to repair. That, my whole point is, we, we don't have to dig a big ditch with uh, uh, shoring. It's, you can isolate the one at Deep Creek. Cassia is a little bit different. The pipeline doesn't work. In the future, can we put a redundant system at Cassia other than filling the reservoir and letting the water gravitate back into the pipeline? I mean, which is a possibility, but a, a bad one. But we thought about that years ago. Because there's only one line, right, with at, that stupid yeah. fish, fish tank there. Yeah, with uh, there's only the drum strainer that you're speaking. Yeah. Of? Yes, it, there's only one bait or one sleeve valve that's hooked up to that uh, that uh, sleeve valve and and the drum strainer. And Mike, I want to clarify. There is a parallel train there, with with two set sleeve valves, but we have only operated one of those trains, right? Correct, because there are two. Yeah. There are one small and one large, right? Yeah, I think they vary in size slightly. But if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, Doug or Tesfe, but uh, there's two sleeve valves there, but there's only one sleeve valve. And is it the north sleeve valve, Doug, that's hooked up, that goes actually through the drum strainer? Correct, yeah. yeah. The, the south sleeve valve is upstream of the, is upstream of the, the um, drum strainer. So the sleeve itself would be the strainer. The, the traveling screen will allow us to remove the complication of the strainer. Uh, yeah. But you're still going to have an issue of breaking pressure at the sleeve valve, right. whether or not sleeve. It, I mean, you, you can see that wear and tear on the sleeve valve. I mean, it's it's literally the whole job is to, I don't know what your ups, your, you know, the difference in pressure is maybe it's breaking 200 pounds or something. Or close between, to 200 PSI. It's a lot. Yeah. It's going to be violent on purpose to dissipate the energy. That energy results in, it's not heat, uh, well, some heat, but mostly vibration and turbulence that's created. So it's good. you're going to expect some wear, but um, you know, unless you have fully redundant trains with a full flow, you're going to, always going to have that as an issue. Right. Splitting it up at least half flow, you can, if you have an outage, you can run half flow, but it's still not going to be fully redundant. So it works. Even though these pictures look horrible, this thing still works pretty good and it will work better, I think, once we eliminate the fish problem or the clogging thing, two by fours and crap like that in the line. Yes, and by having the, the, the traveling screen, screen upstream, that will allow us to take advantage of both north sleeve and the south sleeve. And we do inspect them regularly, so we're well aware. And they let you know if they're not working properly because they make a hellacious noise. If they're, <laughs> you know, that the they're, or they vibrate. 
they, they make a tremendous vibration too. So anything that it becomes, um, they're still probably the best way to do this right now unless we can uh, uh, figure out, because they're 30 years old. Yeah, and I wanted to connect the dot here uh, that I like to do often with this specific issue. We can build out redundancy, which is very expensive. Uh, uh, or we can do what we're pursuing, which is banking, storing water, potential recovery to then deliver so that if you have an outage, well, we can still move the water. We can get it where we want it to go in, you know, in our hands without spill risk, et cetera, but uh, gives us the time to then uh, move it elsewhere over time. So, And I think on these sleeve valves, a lot of the problems you see are repetitive. You know which pieces are going to last like forever so and which pieces are going to be uh, uh, sacrificial over time. That's what we're seeing. And it's the nature of the beast. And I'm sure Bailey agrees with that. And they're prepared to help us when it needs to be done. Okay. All right. Moving along. Thank you all, staff, for your reports. Uh, General Manager's report. Nothing in additional report. Thank you. We have any pub public participation? Not at this time. Any discussion of uh, things for future agenda items? Marina? Okay, keep the good updates coming and we are adjourned. <laughs>